Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. A break in a 32-year-old cold case. Police saying this afternoon that they have identified a suspect in the death of a 14-year-old girl. Investigators say back in 1989, Stephanie Isaacson was sexually assaulted and strangled near Nellis and Stewart. Last year, police say they got a donation to help solve cold cases with limited DNA. DNA was sent to the lab and police got a match. It was a man who had committed suicide back in 1995. Metro is encouraging people to donate to help solve more of these cold cases. Tonight, a 31-year-old cold case is finally solved. The rape and murder of 16-year-old Fawn Cox has been the focus of several KCTV5 investigations. Her killer has finally been identified because of advanced DNA testing. Investigative reporter Angie Racono talked with her family. This is the day Fawn's family has been waiting for, the day they finally get answers, but the answers are tough to hear. They learned today the DNA left at the crime scene matches a relative. The family tells me the match is Donald Cox Jr. and he was Fawn's cousin. It's, it's a relief. There's closure. The answers aren't always what we're, we were asking for, but there's closure. The fact that it's someone that you know well and it's actually a relative, how, how is the family dealing with that? I think we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Just, just having answers helps. Fawn's family always suspected the killer was known to them and Fawn. That's because the killer knew how to sneak in her bedroom window and Fawn never screamed. This case here was kind of the, the best possible case scenario in something like this. Kansas City Police revealed answers came in in just a matter of weeks once they did advanced genetic genealogy testing. And that's where you explore public databases and find relatives of the killer and work your way backwards to reveal the suspect. It's expensive. The FBI paid the bill. Any reduction in funding will only make situations like that less likely to happen in the future. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. I hope you're all doing well as we ease into the fall season. I would like to let people know about the Walk for Amy in honor of Amy Maholovic starting at 5 p.m. at the Bay Village Middle School on October 27th. You can visit walkforamy.org to donate or to find out more information. And with Amy's case always on my mind at this time of year, I wanted to cover two cases this week from that era, which were recently solved using DNA. 
It's more of a reminder that Amy's case, regardless of how cold it is, can still be solved. We can only hope that the technology allows the authorities to find a suspect. But until then, let's dive into the cases that give me hope that Amy's case will one day be solved. The first case we are going to talk about today is the 1989 murder of 14-year-old Stephanie Isaacson. Now, Miss Isaacson was found bludgeoned, raped, and strangled in an empty Las Vegas sandlot in 1989. Unfortunately, police did not have a lot to work with. They had a small amount of DNA on her shirt, and this would actually lead the case to being cold pretty much instantly. And it was cold for about three decades. Miss Isaacson had vanished on the morning of June 1st, 1989. She was walking her usual route to El Dorado High School, which cut through a sandlot. When she didn't return home, her father became worried. And that was when he actually called the school. And that's when, if he wasn't concerned already, he had to have been panicked when the front office told him that his daughter had never actually made it to class. In what could have been only a panicked state, her father then reached out to all of her friends, and not one of them had seen her at school that day. This is when he finally made the worst call ever. This was the call to police to report his daughter missing. At that time, Metro Police began an exhaustive air and ground search, attempting to locate Stephanie. It didn't last very long because around 8.40 p.m. that evening, some of the teens' belongings and textbooks were found tossed about near the intersection of Nellis Boulevard and Stewart Avenue, in which the paper described in 1989 as still being a desert area. Then, search parties looking for the missing girl found her body about 25 yards off the trail that she typically took to and from school each and every day. Stephanie's autopsy unfortunately showed that she had suffered significant blunt force trauma injuries and that she had been sexually assaulted. In the years since Isaacson's death, police said they identified several suspects. Investigators had even traveled to Washington State, Ohio, and Texas to follow up on leads. But it was in 1998 when the department's Forensic Laboratory attempted to test the evidence for DNA using now obsolete technology. They eventually tried again in 2007 when the 1998 attempt was unsuccessful, and they were able to successfully obtain a DNA profile from semen from that little spot on Isaacson's shirt. The team actually uploaded the DNA profile into an FBI database, but unfortunately, they never received a match. Now, the cause of death for Miss Isaacson was strangulation. And as I mentioned before, the case was cold for 32 years. But on July 21st, this summer, a Texas forensics lab had taken that tiny amount of genetic material, the equivalent of fewer than 15 human cells, and identified the teen's alleged killer. The DNA sample is considered the smallest amount ever used to solve a case. The material, combined with genetic genealogy research, has linked Darren Roy Marchand 
Stephanie's murder. Marchand was accused of a similar murder three years before Stephanie's death. Now, unfortunately, this dirtbag committed suicide in 1995 at the age of 29. Kim Murga, who was the head of the department's forensics lab, said the DNA evidence had been tested multiple times over the decades as technology has improved. But it wasn't until 2007 that the stain on Stephanie's shirt finally provided that profile of her killer. Now, it was the next 13 years where the lab compared the unknown man's DNA profile to some 30 samples collected in the case and came up empty. And that's when, in November 2020, Othram Incorporated, a private lab in the Woodlands, Texas area that specializes in genome sequencing for law enforcement, reached out to offer Murga and her team its services. Now, it was said that Stephanie's case was chosen specifically because of the minimal amount of DNA evidence that was available. So detectives, on a, a hope and a whim, sent the scant DNA evidence they had off to Othram. And this is where forensic scientists spent the next seven months using the company's genome sequencing technique to build a genetic profile of the alleged killer. A news release from the company stated, quote, The Othram genealogy team used the profile to develop investigative leads that were returned to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. The leads ultimately led to Darren Roy. Darren was 23 years old when Stephanie was murdered. And this guy had previously, like I said, been arrested in February 1986 for the strangulation homicide of Nanette Vanderberg, 24, of Las Vegas. Authorities said the case against Marchand was later dismissed because there was a lack of evidence. However, there was DNA evidence in Vanderberg's killing, but of course, testing was not yet available. The new testing that linked Marchand to Stephanie's murder just so happened to also link him to Vanderberg's death. Quote, Marchand's DNA from the case involving Nanette was compared to the DNA located in Stephanie's case, and it was a match, police officials said. According to KIRO7, it was unclear how detectives initially tied Marchand to Vanderberg's killing in 1986, but Spencer said there is no way to know if he knew Stephanie prior to the day of her murder. Quote, it appears to be a random attack while she was walking to school. The slain teen's family has some answers they've sought for a long time, but unfortunately, the man accused of her killing will never be held criminally responsible. Quote, it's good to have some closure, but there is no justice for Stephanie at all, her mother's statement read. Quote, we will never have complete closure because nothing will ever bring my daughter back to us. Unquote. Now again, genome sequencing and genetic genealogy been the processes used to bring in the Golden State Killer. In April 2019, some investigators successfully used the technology to solve the 1972 murder of a 20-year-old woman in Washington State. And the killer died by suicide in that, no that following November before sentencing. And so the case of 
Miss Isaacson is one of obviously dogged determination by the investigators who continued to have the DNA that they did have tested. And that is an amazing thing because you do not always get that in these cases. So it's very nice to see when investigators stick it out and finally do come up with an answer. Even if it doesn't provide closure to the family, it at least gives them answers to who committed this awful, awful crime. And again, like her mother said, they're never going to get her daughter back. So technically, there will never be any closure. So again, the reason why I wanted to do that and cover that case is because of the fact that there was such little evidence. And there's very little evidence in the Mahalovic case. So, fingers crossed. Now, the second case is extremely creepy and probably every young girl's worst nightmare. Not to mention appearance. I'm talking about 16-year-old Fawn Cox. This young teenager was killed in her own bedroom at her house at 9th and Van Brunt while the rest of her family slept on July 26th. 1989. Someone had apparently climbed up and broken into her window. She was sexually assaulted and killed. Of course, this case haunted the Kansas City area and the community, as well as the police, for more than 30 years. According to Captain Caldwell, the initial detectives worked the case into the ground, running down every lead. In 1989, those detectives didn't realize how valuable some of the evidence crime scene investigators collected would become. CSI actually collected body fluids from a potential suspect. At the time, all they could do was attempt to compare blood types. I mean, 1980 sounds like, 89 sounds like it was like the prehistoric times when it came to crime scene investigation. And how far we've come since then is absolutely insane. So, Cox was a student at Northeast High School. She was found dead by her mother, and she had a nightshirt wrapped around her neck. Her parents and two sisters had been sleeping downstairs in the house, but they did not hear any disturbance. And again, it was around 9.30 a.m. that she was found. And police believe the killing took place during a burglary but there was really no signs of forced entry but like I mentioned before they did find a second floor window open and noted several items had been taken from the house Felicia Cox told KCTV quote I went over to shake her I said come on get up but she had been gone for a while cops suspected that the suspect had known the house very well and came in through that bedroom window. And investigators believed Fawn knew her killer, and she was targeted. The Kansas City Star reported in 2000, quote, nearly 11 years after a 16-year-old girl was sexually assaulted and slain, the Kansas City girl's family has increased the reward for information that could help catch a killer. The family of Fawn Cox has donated $3,000 in addition to the $1,000 already offered through TIPS Hotline, 
A police detective said it was unusual to see a reward increased after so much time had passed. Beverly Cox hopes the reward will draw out people with information about the killing of her daughter, many people who have stayed silent for 11 years. Money does do a lot of talking on the streets, she said. Quote, that's why we're hoping and praying for. For the past year, the Cox family has pushed investigators to keep pursuing the case, even though years have passed without any progress. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. It's great getting back to normal as we head into fall. I know I'll be working in the yard and hitting my favorite fall festivities. One thing I know for sure is I'll be diving into Best Fiends on my phone. Since true crime research calls for a mental break, Best Fiends has become my go-to. Clearly, I love to solve puzzles, and Best Fiends offers me a new challenge every day. Best Fiends is way more fun than any other matching puzzle game out there. It's also one of those games that makes time fly, and it's totally free to download. One of the coolest parts about Best Fiends is there's something new going on all the time. Whether it's a new challenge, more levels, a fun monthly event, or new characters. I am cruising through these levels, and that's pretty much a sign that anyone can play. I've discovered that moving through these puzzle levels is also a mindful experience. Plus, collecting all those different characters is another reason that I turn to Best Fiends for a challenge. If you're tired of the same old puzzle games, this game is for you. If you don't have a favorite character yet, give Temper a try. He's small but mighty. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Amber Gonzalez, the younger sister of Fawn Cox Gonzalez, makes regular trips back to Kansas City for updates on the case. She calls police and meets with prosecutors who are expressing renewed interest. Quote, they've done everything to make it right. Not long after the slain, three suspects were charged in connection with Fawn's death, but those charges were dropped. Rick Montgomery of the Kansas City Star wrote in 2017, quote, As her parents slept elsewhere in the home, 16-year-old Fawn Cox was molested in her second-story bedroom. On the morning of July 26, 1989, Fawn's alarm went off as she had said it, but the girl wasn't alive to turn it off. Her mother entered the room as the clock blared. She found Fawn's body in the bed, clad in a nightshirt. Like most cold cases, it haunted Kansas City. Updated DNA testing of evidence from the crime scene, and now available 24-7 on national databases, ought to turn up a suspect when that person is charged with a felony, Captain Caldwell said. Quote, whoever killed her either has never been charged with a felony or is no longer alive. People don't start killing and then quit 
and stay out of trouble as if they fell off the face of the earth. Investigators could only presume that Fawn's killer or killers had entered through that open window. They speculated that he may have climbed atop a pickup truck behind the house to get up there. Fawn had spoken with her parents the night before, after her cashier's shift at Worlds of Fun, and eventually went to bed around 11 p.m. According to news accounts, she was the only family member sleeping on the second floor. It turns out it was also a muggy night, so her her attacker may have actually been aided by the noise of the room air conditioners on the main floor, where at least one of Fawn's sisters slept to stay cool. As I mentioned before, some things were taken, and these were small electronic devices. Now, from all reports, Miss Cox was not known to use drugs, and her father was even reported praising her dedication to serving their church, Sheffield Assembly of God. Captain Caldwell said, By all accounts, she was a good kid. Every death we see is tragic, but it's especially tragic when it happens to a child who thinks she's in the safety of her own home. I second that sentiment. Again, a worst-case scenario, a absolute nightmare. And as I mentioned before, within a month, there were three male teens, two of them juveniles, who were arrested for questioning. And police appeared to be moving toward a theory that it was a botched robbery. Now, again, eventually all three suspects were charged in various counts of murder and sexual assault in Miss Cox's death. However, investigators were never able to place any of them at the crime scene, and one of them actually had to spend eight months in jail. Well, if that happened today, we know he'd either be getting a payout or, well, it probably would never have happened because the DNA would have proved it wasn't him. Because in his case, DNA DNA tests failed to link him to the crimes. Prosecutors ultimately saw the case unravel, and Fawn Cox's murder stood as an early example of DNA testing that produced inconclusive, if not faulty, results. Now, Fawn's parents were very religious, so they took solace in her devotion to church and Christian youth activities. Quote, that's the only thing that's holding us together. Father John Cox would say in the hours after the crime, quote, knowing that I'll be able to spend the rest of eternity with her someday. Unfortunately, it would be many more years before the family would finally have answers. Luke Nozika of the Kansas City Star was the lucky writer to report on the solving of one of the city's saddest cold cases. He wrote, The 1989 rape and killing of a 16-year-old girl in Kansas City was recently solved with the help of advanced techniques decades after the case went cold, according to police. Police said the case was solved in partnership with the FBI, which confirmed it assisted in the investigation, but declined to go into details about what techniques they used. Fawn's relatives were told the suspect's name Monday. In a tweet, police said it was the department's, quote, honor to notify her family of this news today, and we hope they might finally have some closure after decades of uncertainty and pain. 
Again, as I mentioned, the three teenagers who were initially charged in Fawn's killing were eventually released. And clearly, when they went back, they were actually... So this is interesting. They went back and interviewed the three guys that were originally charged in Fawn's case. They ran their DNA again against their DNA with the most up-to-date technology, and once again, they were proved not to be the killer. Now, again, the decades-old case that was solved using DNA technology was the first by the Kansas City Police Department. And again, this case is a case that needed to be solved for the people of Kansas City. I mean, if you have a citizen who is attacked in her own bedroom and it goes unsolved, I cannot imagine what it is like for the neighborhood and the family to be stuck in that type of quagmire. Authorities say the advanced DNA testing revealed the rapist and killer was Fawn's cousin, Donald Cox Jr. And apparently he died in 2006 under suspicious circumstances. According to Fawn's sister, Felicia Cox, it's a relief. There's closure. The answers aren't always what we are asking for, but there's closure. So, some of the suspects that they had originally investigated thought that it was the 9th Street Dog Gang, which was one of the groups of young men causing trouble in the neighborhood. Again, None of this had anything to do with the actual killer because the killer was one of those people that was a little too close to home. And it was in two, the 2000s that the Kansas City Police Department crime lab scientists developed a suspect DNA profile from the bodily fluids that were collected and stored in 1989. And this was uploaded into CODIS. And there was no match. And... According to the Kansas City Police Department, the Cox family was insistent on them using genealogical DNA. And in the summer of 2020, Operation Legend came to Kansas City, bringing federal resources to the department, focusing on solving violent crimes. And this helped the department overcome those financial barriers that were preventing them from performing this test. And as I mentioned, it was her cousin. Crime lab staff had extracted the DNA from that blood sample that they had from when Donald Cox died in 2006. And again, they matched it up. And it's just, it's crazy to think that, you know, this guy walked around, family. I mean, it just, it's super disturbing to think that you would have a killer in your family and one that you possibly suspected along the way. And it's just very, very sad to think that someone like Fawn fell victim to a family member, a relative. It's just, uh, it's disgusting and it's, uh, it's just a shame. And it's a shame that the police uh, originally wouldn't release his name. And again, I understand if they're trying to protect his family, but at the end of the day, he raped and killed his cousin. I mean, that's just disgusting and wrong. So, oh well, you know, Donald Cox, 
is uh, a rapist and a killer. So that's um, pretty awful. But to think that he was around for 17 years after he committed this crime, I mean, just imagine what else he did. I mean, is it is it even possible that he committed other crimes? So, I don't know. Check it out, investigators. That's what you do. Basically, with these two cases, you have genealogical DNA coming to the rescue. But that will not always be an option. When we look back at the Amy Mahalovic case, we are left to wonder when the technology will catch up to where they can test what they have without using it all. Since I hosted the first series on who killed Amy Mahalovic, Chief Mark Spetzel has retired, and the case is once again getting renewed attention. It is clear when Dateline covers a case, it will cause new interest. And with the anniversary of her abduction coming on the 27th of this month, there will be another round of news stories. As well as the unfortunate timing of Sweeps Week, which will bring you a bunch of stories of quote-unquote new information, which will not be new information 99.9% of the time. Unfortunately, from what I've been told in Amy's case, the genealogical sequencing isn't something that it's currently possible. It's also not possible to plug it into CODIS and get a suspect. The technology is evolving all the time, so I'm still holding out hope the DNA will eventually be able to lead us to a suspect. For those of you who aren't familiar with Amy's case, she was only 10 years old when she was abducted from the Bay Village shopping plaza located directly across from the police station. What makes her case so scary is that she was very clearly targeted since she was lured to the plaza under a ruse. Amy had received a phone call, or multiple calls, by a man who claimed to have worked with her mother, Margaret, and wanted to help her buy a gift for her promotion at work. According to Chief Spetzel, the man told her they would have $44 to spend, and whatever was left over could be used to buy Amy something. As much as this sounds like a bad after-school special, this actually happened. And Amy would go on to meet this man on October 27, 1989. And this was the last time Amy would be seen alive. She was seen talking with a man at the plaza. And again, that was the last sighting of Amy. Investigators swarmed the case, and the FBI was brought in to assist in the search. Teams of searchers were dispatched across the county, checking ponds, woods, fields, outhouses, and everything else that Tommy Lee Jones told you to search in The Fugitive. But nothing was found until early February 1990, when a jogger had the unfortunate incident of coming across Amy's body lying in a field off of County Road 1181. She was still wearing the clothes that she was last seen wearing. Police scoured the area, which was a shocking 50 miles from where she was abducted. I have been to the crime scene, and there is no way it was a random location. The person who killed Amy had to be familiar with the area in order to end up where she was found. The location is in North Ashland County and is surrounded by nothing but farms and fields. To say it is desolate is an understatement. So the reason I brought up these two cases is because they show, despite being over three decades old, good things can still happen. Will there ever be justice for the family? We can only hope.
I'm sure each case solved using some new type of tech gives the investigators still working Amy's case a glimmer of hope. If Stephanie Isaacson's case can be solved using the smallest amount of DNA ever, then we have some things to be positive about. In the case of Fawn Cox, I just shake my head at the betrayal of the family by her own cousin. It is something I'm sure acts as a double-edged sword. On one hand, you know the killer. On the other, you think about all those years he was able to roam free after her murder. I find both of these cases very intriguing, and they show the doggedness of the investigators and the families. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. If you have a family member killed, you must become their number one spokesperson and make sure nobody forgets. The expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, is aptly applied. So if any of you ever find yourself in the position of these families, know it is absolutely your responsibility to keep your loved one's story alive. John Walsh was the one who spread that message to the Mahalovics in 1989 and to every family he has ever spoken to about a murdered loved one. Of course, he knows this personally, as it was his son Adam whose murder in 1984 led him on a mission he's been on ever since, and that is tracking down the bad guys. Say what you want about his shows, but at the end of the day, he does seem to care. He featured Amy's case at the end of one of the first episodes of America's Most Wanted, and even came to Bay Village to meet with the family. So with Amy's case back in the spotlight, I hope we are getting closer to the answer we have all been searching for these past 32 years. It just takes one phone call to get the ball rolling. If you know something, say something. This case is one that hangs over the city and will do so forever, unless someone is eventually brought to justice. I hope the whole Mahalovic family will one day get the same phone call the Cox family recently received. You just have to keep the hope alive. And on that note, I'll be wrapping up this week's episode of Who Killed. Thank you again to this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. Download it today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. As you know, you can find new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support this show via PayPal with my username at WilliamHuffman3. Or if you have the Venmo app, you can donate with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Every contribution, big or small, really does help keep these podcasts going. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Don't forget about the Walk for Amy on October 27th, 19... Well... October 27th, 2021 at 5 p.m. at the Bay Village Middle School. If you would like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered as well as the new shows I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. You can also check out my YouTube channel as well. Thank you so much again for listening. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe.
Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.